Hello everyone and welcome back to the 16mm Film Crew Podcast. The name is Victor. Cindy Victor. <laughs> and I'm Dale. <laughs> uh. You can watch us on YouTube. You can like and comment on our YouTube videos and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us on Anchor. You can... Listen to us on iTunes, Google Music, and Spotify at 16mm Film Crew Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at 16mm Crew Podcast and on Instagram at 16mm Crew. So, this week is 007 James Bond No Time to Die, the last of Daniel Craig's in the franchise. Well, of his turn of being Bond anyway. And this movie sees James Bond. He is enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica after leaving active service. However, his peace is short-lived as his old friend, Felix, shows up and asks for help. The mission to rescue a kidnapped scientist turns out to be far more treacherous than expected, leading Bond on the trail of a mysterious villain who's armed with a dangerous new technology. Um, It's directed by Carrie I don't know if I pronounced that right, but yes, Carrie. And it stars Daniel Craig, obviously, as Jim Bond, um, Rami Malik, Lashana Lynch, Leah Sido, um, God, Ralph Fiennes, all the people who were in it in the last one, but also a couple of new peeps. They're in this one too. Jeffrey Wright, all the homies. So let's talk about this movie. Dale, first impressions. Uh, I loved it. You know, um, especially because this, this movie for me references one of my favorite James Bond movies, On Your Majesty's Secret Service. Um, and that movie's used in that song. Everything involved in that movie is used as a motif throughout the movie. And if you're familiar with that movie, the opening couple lines of them interacting, you were kind of prepared in a way for what the movie would go for. And I think that's a nice touch because... It shows that they understand the world of James Bond and how much, even though it's a different person each time and they're different missions, different stories, how much of that uh, the movies are interconnected in a way, you know? Yeah, I saw this movie with my mom who hasn't seen a James Bond movie since the 90s or something like that. So that was interesting. But I also loved this movie. It was so, so, so good. So let's just jump into it. (laughs) I mean, wow. I feel like for me as a fan of James Bond, um, it's kind of like I can't just critique this movie. Like this movie is amazing. But also it being Daniel Craig's last film, you kind of have to critique the five movie run as well and i do feel like as we've as we as the movies the franchise series in a way got rolling you saw them understand what makes bond bond a lot more because in the past it was just one-off missions where something happens and then the consequences of those previous missions don't really roll over and you saw what even with casino royale that those consequences kind of bled over into the continuing movies not as well as it should have been and it's not until we get to Skyfall do we really get the elements completely of what makes Bond Bond and what makes a Bond movie Bond movie. Because for the first two movies, there's no mention of Money Penny, there's no mention of um, of Q. There are no gadgets until we reach Skyfall. And at with Skyfall, you can see, um, the duo of um, um, Neil Purvis and Robert yeah. Wade really hit their stride in writing James Bond, which is interesting because their first. The other two Bonds they wrote were the last two um, Pierce Brosnan movies, which were uh, The World's Not Enough and Died Another Day, which also have mixed responses of kind of being too campy in the way Roger Moore was. And they tried to, you know, rectify that with, I guess, Casino Royale and Quantum Solace. Not, not, not just that, but also dealing with the time, the, at the time, the premiere spy movie was Jason Bourne. It was kind of grounded in realism and it kind of over course corrected, in my opinion to fix those mistakes i guess mm. yeah yeah i don't i haven't watched i think i might have watched the pierce Brosnan one with halle berry yeah but i haven't seen any of the others in the um like 
catalog of James Bond. Yeah. So my Bond has always been Daniel Craig. Like, that's the person that I've known yeah. growing up and seeing. And I really liked his kind of dirty, gritty, more grounded version. It felt more like a a born, but not, like, obviously he has, like, the gadgets and yeah. the cleaner look and stuff. But, yeah, it, a, it felt a lot more realistic to me. Um, and even with the addition of like the gadgets and stuff I still think that Daniel's portrayal of Bond was very more like hardened grittier kind of guy not like kind of stylish and sleek even yeah. though he did have a little bit of that too but yeah I really loved his take on Bond even though I haven't like I'm not super familiar with all of the other ones I do like this one but I haven't really been excited about a Bond film since Skyfall um, I know there were Spectre, which I like barely watched. I think I got through like maybe like an hour of it, and I was like, nah, I can't do this. Um, but I was so excited about this because I was like, ooh, looks really good. And he, I think because it is his last one, he brought like an energy to it that maybe he wasn't miss. He was kind of missing in the other ones. Um, yeah. Um, I no, I agree with you. Like I, I'm a fan. I understand. Bond, his grittier take, and Bond kind of more realistic, and the good thing for me is through the course of particularly these movies, we've seen that gritty layer, that hyper-realistic alpha male mentality of I drink, I smoke, I drive fast cars, I romance women, I shoot my guns, kind of decrease as they've under they've analyzed him as a character more, with these with Skyfall, Spectre, and uh, No Time to Die, and they humanize them not a lot more, and and not just that, also the Bond songs also play a big part in the storylines as well. And if you just listen to, like, you could just listen to Skyfall, Spectre, and No Time to Die, particularly uh, Riding on the Wall and um, Billy Osh's No Time to Die. They're really the crux of those three movies because it's more about Bond becoming human in a way and wanting love. Mm-hmm. And the perfect scene, which summarize it, summarizes that whole moment. And this whole franchise is when he's there, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, I apologize, where the girls, the, the his, his daughter that he doesn't know is his daughter, or is hypothesizing his daughter, is like, I'm hungry, and he's uh, he goes and cuts apples for her, and then he sits back, and he crosses his arms, he's smi- and he's smiling, full of glee, like, because that's what he's always wanted, that kind of joy that his lifestyle has never afforded him to, because we see in all three, all five of these movies that he does a mission... For some reason, he gets fed up at work, and then he quits. And then he shows, he goes, oh, fuck it, I gotta go back to work again, kind of thing. And it's always that cycle of work, get fed up, and then these last couple mm-hmm. movies, he's grown as a person. He knows what he wants, his love, like, continuing off expected. He goes off with the girl, and, and with this movie, he reconnects to her and realizes his love for her, and then is willing to sacrifice himself, which is, I think, is an amazing character growth, especially for a character like Bond, who's never really portrayed in that way, since On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is Pain because it's more of a love story, not a traditional spy movie in a way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I felt very like this arc was a very like Iron Man arc, where mm-hmm. he has like everything, and then it it all get take it all gets taken away from him in the snap, and then he like has his own life and the daughter and the wife, and he's like happy, but he's like rests himself at the end for everyone. Like I don't know two completely different franchises, but that's just what it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Um, but just talking about this movie particularly, I loved how it looked. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful to look at. The shots were so well done. Um, I think one of the things I was watching, I was watching an interview with Christopher Nolan and he was talking about how much he loves Bond and how that genre really inspired all of his films, especially Tenet. And the globe-trotting nature of it, where you're just like in different locations and you see like the expansiveness of the locations and how it informs every like moment of the character. Like I love that we meet Lashana Lynch's character, who's like the new 007 in Jamaica. I just love that. And how they really brought out that culture. I mean, I'm not making you know better, but, <laughs> but they were playing some music. I said, okay, hold up. Y'all got my attention. Like <laughs> the music was good. Um, I just like little things like that. It felt, what this movie felt 
for me was that like they took every actor's like own perspective and kind of incorporated it within the story. So it seemed like Carrie and whoever um and the writers of it really took the time to like ask the actors their opinions on stuff and like get them to collaborate with them for certain things. Like I thought it was interesting that the first time we really meet Rami Malek's character, um, Safon, it's in a therapy office. And that just was like straight up Mr. Robot vibes. Like the first like main scene in Mr. Robot is him in the therapist office. Like I was like, I don't know if they did that on purpose, but that was so cool. Like any fan of either of, of anyone's work would have been like, okay, yeah, I can see where they got that from. Like that's dope. Like I love Leah Sado's, um, that whole sequence in the forest like was very reminiscent of like the four scenes in The Lobster, which she was also in. So it was just like, I don't know if they're doing this on purpose. However, as a fan, I was just like, this is cool. I like that they incorporated their stuff in here. Like it felt very much like a collaborative effort on all fronts. It, It really felt like a complete movie from all angles in a way um like i love the fact for me as you know being a bond fan i noticed all those little details of what's going on i love the fact they went back to jamaica orakabesa chilling in ochi you know that was something that was in you know the original bond movies you know i love that and you hear bougie in the background walk like a champion which personifies james bond in a way you know i love mm-hmm. uh her little accent she put she dropped her h she, she said house instead of house. I love that. Me and my friend were like, that's good. She caught it. She dropped the H. We don't like her H's that much. So, you know, those those touches I loved. Um, I love those little bonding moments of, you know, um, Jeffrey Wright and Daniel Craig as Bond and Felix, which is something like they, I guess they showed their connection and friendship off screen a lot more than anything else. But this is the first time in a Bond movie or in the run of bond movies mostly with daniel craig's or as a whole where you actually got to see them actually kind of express a commonality more as friendships than kind of co-workers in a way which i loved and that's something that was only seen before and i think in license to kill where felix is getting married and james says fuck it i'm going off to, i'm going rogue and killing everybody so to see that relationship be portrayed in that way, which I wish they could have done more Felix overall in the franchise because especially with these talks about if John James Bond could be a woman of color or a woman in general or a per- different person of color, it would have been good to you know inject more of Felix into this franchise to potentially like, look, James Bond is here you know, I know people have concerns about you know, just palette swapping established characters, but we're going to build Felix up and prop him up so I guess that's one thing I wish they, didn't do, they could have do with the franchise, but all in all, I love you know. Uh, she like I'm um, forgetting her name. The new why well, I forget her name, uh, Lashana Lynch. Um, she's able to stand mm-hmm. on her own, and she has her own witty one-liners, and she's able to go back and forth with James and that kind of thing. There's kind of a a friendly rivalry in their dialogue and the way they go about it, which I thought was a nice touch, but. Yeah, this movie from top to bottom is like a complete movie. Something the Bond franchise, to a degree, was missing for some some time. You know, and I, and I loved. Yeah. Even though it like it's like two, it's almost three hours in a way, but it didn't feel long. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, and usually, like I'm the person who hates long long times, but I really did not feel it. I was like, this is good. Like I'm very much engaged in what's going on here um i i loved the women in this film which is funny because i feel like the bond girl stereotype is something that's been like kind of made fun of over the couple years where it's just like oh she's just pretty and she does a little boom boom chop chop and, and then like it's over but she's not really complex she's not realized in any way and i like that daniel craig said that 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 doesn't really exist in his franchises or in his take of the franchise of like no the bond girls are they're not really a thing like they're fully realized women and so i liked that you didn't just have the love interest as an important 
female character. You had Lashana Lynch and you had Anna DeArms who was in it for like maybe 12 minutes. But still, I loved her whole sequence and I loved that she was able to be like really fierce and powerful, but also like really just excited to meet James Bond and to be like doing her first job. Like, I like how they mixed it up and it wasn't just one type of woman or what men think that strong females look like on screen where they're just a female version of a man with the same characteristics. Like, they were able to be complex and able to be feminine too. Like, I just love how they did it. And I have to give a shout out to Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who was a writer on this, because I have to think that, like, she had some influence with that, where it's like, no, we're going to have more than one woman and they're going to all be dope. Like, so just just prepare yourself. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And also, it's just interesting that, like, the Bond theme song is done by Billie Eilish, who is an American and, like, a teenager. She's still, like, 19 (laughs) or something like that. Like, but that was so cool that she was able to do that song. And also how they remixed the Bond theme throughout the entire movie. Come on, y'all! Y'all are doing it. Yeah, they they like, really in this movie they really took that bond the bond theme and a lot of uh, other musical cues like throughout the movie like I said before was that the title the ending song of um we have uh what was it the dang why am I missing <laughs> we have all the time in the world by Louis Armstrong from the Magic Secret Service that motif mm-hmm. existing even that song is placed out the movie in different subtle ways that you don't realize it. The same with the Bond theme. They changed the Bond theme so much in the song in the movie, where it's not certain elements of it aren't the same. Like certain parts is drawn out or slower to really accentuate the tension in certain scenes. But like you said before, I think Craig's Bond has done a good job with showing the strength of women, which I think once again is something that uh, uh, the writers uh, Neil and um, Neil Purvis and um, Robert Wade, that was their weakness for the last two Daniel uh, Pierce Brosnan movies. Um, particularly in World's Not Enough, you had, you know, Denise Richards playing C- Christmas Jones, I think. And she's supposed to be hot, but she's also a nuclear physicist. And it was really awkward. And then we had, you know, you had uh, Halle Berry kind of underutilized in the last one. So mm. to see three very distinct different women, not even just three, four. Because I'm going to include Money Penny mm. in this. Four different women all reacting in different ways. Like, uh, Deanna Armas, like, I love that excitement. Like, she stole that scene of that rookie agent. Like, it's my first mission. They get the martini, she chugs it down. Like, that, mm-hmm. like, that, you became enamored of her in that short time. She left an impression with you. Then you have the vulnerability of, um, of, uh, Dr. Swan. I don't know, I forget her first name, her being very vulnerable and emotional. And you have the stoicism of, you know, LaShawna's character, like, I'm your replacement. Get with it. Or, you know, like, I loved mm-hmm. that it was, like, really, you got to see it was three distinct women, which most time in these kind of movies, they kind of make one woman be all of them, and it becomes really right. muddled. So I do think you're mm-hmm. right. Phoebe's touch in that characterization of these women was really, really on point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I love all the action sequences that was so great some of that stuff like the motorcycle just like flying up on a thing i was like what the (laughs) but i mean it was cool like it was cool to look at and i just yeah i really loved all the action and i liked that on the parts where there weren't as much action sequences the story didn't fall flat like you were still engaged because sometimes that happens in these bigger action movies where it's just a lot of action and then there's like some dead space until the next action sequence. And that wasn't really a thing in this. It's like you were, it was like a spy. It was definitely like a spy movie where you're figuring out, you're trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Like I liked that aspect of it as well. I liked that they were able to balance the two things and one didn't kind of overpower the other thing. My only like discrepancy with the movie is the character of Stefan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just, Rami was amazing. Okay, let me, all right. Preface it, yeah. Let me <laughs> Rami's performance was incredible. I'm not taking anything away from his performance. The prosthetics added so much to that. He looked creepy and gross and disgusting, but also like really terrifying and like, 
he was way too powerful and in control in his little outfit. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> you got me there. But um, the character, it just was just like another generic villain. Like it was like, yes, his family gets killed. And I guess that's how they tie all of the other movies together of like his, whoever, Leah's father killed his people. And so he had to go kill her people and blah, blah, blah. But like, other than that, I really didn't get any of anything else. It's like one dimension, one dimensional kind of motivation to just be a complete psychopath. And I'm like, you know what? That's not interesting. <laughs> yeah, they kind of, it seems like they kind of skipped out on his storyline. And they were just like, you're just evil. Just just be evil. So I didn't I didn't get anything from that. I mean, I feel like like once, like I said, Rami Malek did an amazing job. I do feel like his Bond villain is probably a really, is was really weak in a way. Um, mm-hmm. and the fact that he's only there in the third act of the movie just to put a bow on the finality of Bond being Bond in a way, just to drive to that point where Bond sacrifices himself. Um, I have like knowing Bond lore. Yes, they cast different people for Blofeld and stuff like that, but Blofeld in the earlier movies, he was never really like he does. He doesn't die until until like like three or four movies in. Before they go on to every different bad guy, I wish they could have continued with even though Blofeld is locked up in a way, like he still they could have extended it more of him being control and like Rami Malek's character being like his number two doing the orders in a way mm-hmm. or something a little bit better. My other issue with Rami Malek, not as and it's not his fault. I do think with the prosthetics they did what they could. I do think they could have did more to age him a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, because it's kind of hard to sell that he's around the same age or older than um than, uh, Dr. Swan, in a way. Because mm-hmm. Robbie Malik has a lot of really young, boyish features, and I'm looking at him like, you're supposed to be intimidating me, but I don't... Like, you're speaking in like a monotone voice, you're, you're doing all the typical villain things, but your face does not give me that stoic, you know, sh- I should feel threatened by you in a way and it's and it makes it worse because he goes to her house when she's like 12 years old right and then and she's now like 30 almost 30 almost 40 years old as an adult and nothing about him in a way changes um Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know i think that's the most and it's not his fault um I guess they probably were, and and that's the thing with casting, is they're also probably looking at the success and notoriety of some people, because he's coming off of Mr. Robot, critical acclaim, you know, announcing him as a new Bond villain, probably draws people who don't really, aren't familiar with Bond, into the franchise to, like, watch this movie, so I do understand from that point, but I do feel like they could have did more, in a way, with making him look older, because it's clear that they were doing that, because... They sh- like every if you watch a Bond movie, Bond gets in fights, and you don't really see the damage of him being worn out. Like you might see him get shot in the shoulder, and you might say, "Oh, he might go to the medic and you know get the bullet taken out and get stitches in." That's it. And next scene, he puts on his tux and everything is fine. But well, at least with this movie, there are certain shots closing up on Daniel Craig where you can see they left like scars on his lips, you know, mm-hmm. the scars mm-hmm. on his nose actually showing the wear and tear of being an agent. I wish they could have took that little time and effort with uh, Rami Malek's character as far as his makeup goes. So, Yeah, I kind of wish that they changed his story because like, even because you're right, he does look, he's like the same age as, not, well, not really, he's like 40 yeah but he looks young still and he looks like he's around the same age of like Lashana Lynch and Leah Sado so it's kind of just like uh how were you how are you there when she was 12 and now you're like it just, I was like someone run the numbers because I'm just not adding up like but I if they change the story because they're trying to make it seem like him and Bond are the same. It's just that he's the other side of the coin. Like, he is just a person who ended up on this track, and Bond ended up on a different track. Yeah. But it's like, how do you 
convince me that you guys are the same when you're clearly like you're young like you're a kid you're like compared to daniel craig you're very young so it's just weird it's just it didn't make any sense because it was like why are y'all trying to make us have like a killmonger black panther moment like that's not really how this works because it just don't add up like i don't and we don't know enough about this character either to for it to convince me that like they are two sides of the same coin because i'm like i don't really know anything about you dude <laughs> like yeah you kill and bond kills when he's like in trouble but i don't know how that makes you guys the same but okay yeah so if they changed the story he probably would have worked as a villain but because they tried to do that with his story it kind of left me like hmm that doesn't make sense what I wish they could have done, what probably would rectify it, is if at the end of Spectre, they uh, captured the other guy. Um, dang, what's the guy? The guy who played Max. I know he's running at actor of um, Andrew. If they captured Andrew instead of Blofeld and had Blofeld continue into this movie, because you, you're right, what they're saying is they're trying to show Bond and Rami Malek's character as two sides of the same coin. Bond, orphan at a young age, becomes a spy to save the world. This guy, orphan at a young age, becomes a supervillain to save the world in his own way. Which you don't get. You don't really. You don't. Doesn't really feel the same based on the youth of his character, the the youth he gives off. Whereas I think it works more Blofeld because when um, Christopher um, Waltz, you could see that there's like adversarial, like oh, you were my brother in a way, and you took my family from you, so now I'm going to take everything you love away, which that plot line could have still continued because it would still work because it that's basically what Robin Mouth does. Oh, you're in love with her get and you have a daughter. Guess what? I'm poisoning you so you can now never have that happiness, which I feel like falls more in line with uh, Blofeld and his character arc of messing with Bond so he can't have happiness. Like, that works more in a way. And I feel like they were unsure what the direction they wanted to go with Blofeld and this villain this current villain so they kind of tried to mash them both into one which is i don't know doesn't work or it wasn't executed as well as it could have been so right right yeah right. yeah Kristoff was only in the movie for like 10 yeah. minutes yeah <laughs> but um tying it all up i think that the ending was really good i like how it it made sense like okay this is his last one so yes i went i went in knowing knowing that he was gonna die yeah but the way he died of like not even being able to be with the people that he loved was kind of sad my mom was like oh why did they have to kill him <laughs> i was like oh but it's his last one so but yeah i kind of wish that I mean, I think it would have been real cliche if he was able to kind of have everything he wanted. Like, he was able to kind of leave that whole mission and be fine. So there had to be some sacrifice. And I liked the way he went out, too. Like, he did sacrifice himself for, like, the safety of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that was pretty nice. It was a nice send-off. Yeah, it's it like, and this movie was, because they're not going to do another Bond movie for a long time most likely. Mm -hmm. So this movie was not just a send-off to Craig, but also the character as well, and the universe, because mm -hmm. you have, you know, touches with the cars, like, um, I spoke about earlier about people's interpretation of Daniel Craig being Bond, because it was too realistic. It reminded a lot of people of, you know, uh, Timothy Dalton's. Timothy Dalton's Bond is really violent, and kind of, that's how people view, uh, Daniel Craig's Bond, so the reference of him driving the, um, what is it, Austin Martin V8 Vantage, I think? Vantage Velote, I think. Same car, Timothy Dalton using the license to kill, so it works in that end. You know, also not just that, but those motifs to license to kill with his relationship with Felix in the car also works because license to kill was the last James Bond movie to use the title of an Ian Fleming story until Daniel Craig's first one in Casino Royale. So those two connectors to the lore really work. Um, you know, the whole thing of embracing, you know, Honor Majesty's Secret Service and the whole love story side of it, which is something of a black sheep among Bond fans. And embracing that whole song and motif about it, you know, 
basically a love is this first movie is a love letter to Bond. And even mm-hmm. the opening sequence is a reference to Doctor No with the little dots, which I loved. So if mm-hmm. you're if you're a Bond fan, you're really gonna like love this movie and notice all those little touches and attention to detail that most people wouldn't love, wouldn't notice, and it'll make it'll you'll love the movie even more for it. So, yeah. Yeah, and even if you're like not like you're kind of an in and out Bond fan. <laughs> yeah. I think that you'll enjoy this movie. It, it really was so well done. Yeah. I have to say, it was like a really, really good movie and absolutely worth the wait. Like, I'm glad they waited and and released it now and didn't release it kind of on streaming or anything else. Like, this was, you think you just, this is a film that you need to see in the theater for sure. So, yeah, well done to everybody. And what's our year rate in it? I mean, even though I, I love it, I will give it, I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. Even though I did have issues with Rami Malek's villain, all in all, I loved the movie from top to bottom. Um, the the scene, like the way the the visuals, the colors when they're in Cuba, that kind of and his thing. Most times they go to like Spanish countries, everything is orange. Like now we're gonna make it a nice blue hue, you know. Anna Diamas character, you know, really bubbly and inviting, which doesn't really work, work with the spy world. You know, she's, mm-hmm. you know, like like I said, all Loretta Lynch being really stoic and serious, going one on one. Like, I loved all those elements of the actors. Uh, the like, I loved everything about this. Like, I've I've gone on long long enough about my love of James Bond and this like this movie. It's marks checks all the marks for me on what a James Bond movie should be and could be. Even though there are issues with the villain, I do think they could have give either given more to Blofeld's character and keep him further, or focus more on Rami Malek's villain for more more of the movie. But other than that, it's a ten out of ten. Not just this movie, but. I'm also going to include Skyfall, Spectre, and No Time Die as one cohesive trilogy in a way. And yeah, hopefully they're able to reach and set this bar with the next set of Bond movies down the line. So yeah, 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. If you're a Bond fan, you'll love this movie. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give this a 10 out of 10 too. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think that when I saw Casino Royale, when I was like, oh, young. I was like, wow, this is so cool. And I had that exact feeling when I was watching this movie, like, wow, this is so cool. And I think that's really what Bond is. It's just, it's cool. Like, it's just a cool thing. It's a cool man doing cool stuff with cool gadgets. Like, it's just dope. And I think whether you're, you know, really into the franchise or whether you're just there to see like a fun movie, I think it delivers on that. And it, it delivers on the action and delivers on the heart, too. Um, there were a lot of moments that were quite emotional. So I think it was just a really good film. And even though there are, like, some issues, I think everyone... And I said this before with other movies, like, you can tell what everyone really cares about a project. And it seems like from the finished product that everyone who was involved in this cared deeply about not only this particular movie but the whole franchise and the history of it like it seems like everyone really cared and wanted to bring their a-game and that's why we got the film we got like it was so dope so yeah 10 out of 10. but so on that note you know gonna continue with you know this bond love fest um but you know first and foremost we're gonna go over the box office numbers for this past uh weekend of course you know 007, you know, debuted at number one. Um, but number 10 was a new one. The Met Opera um, movie Boris Godoff it debuted at number 10, um, which is good to see. Um, it's a typical, you know, when you go to a movie theater, they talk about phantom events. Usually they put theater movies up, not theater, uh, opera plays up in theaters. So to see a movie or production like that debut at 10 is really amazing, considering that the Met all pandemic, or especially the first year of the pandemic, they were allowing all the, uh, their projects, their plays to run for free online for people to watch at a certain time. So it's good to see one of those movies actually make it to number 10 in the box office on the weekend. Of course, number 9, Candyman. Um, Lamb debuted at 8. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen, you know, drops it's down to 7. Free Guy holding at 6. Uh, Many Saints of Newark is at uh, 5. 
Shang-Chi is still at four. Adam Family 2 um, in its second weekend is at three. Um, Venom, Let There Be Carnage in its second, in its, well, last week it was number one. Um, it's two. And, of course, No Time to Die is number one. That's just domestically and internationally across the board. Um, from Venezuela all the way to, you know, Spain, Shang-Chi is still number one. You know, um, of course, in the Indian market, uh, in, there's an Indian movie that's number one. Surprisingly, in the UK this weekend, Shang-Chi is number one as well. you think James Bond would be number one, but it's not, which is surprising for the UK. Um, Mexico, of course, being close to the U.S., is uh, Venom is number one. Um, and China's, China's market is also a local Chinese movie, number one for the weekend in that market. But, yeah, so those are the box office numbers. And let's go on a little further with the big deal for James Bond. Apparently it made uh, $16 million over the four-day weekend um, so far. Um, comparatively, uh, Spectre, I think, made about uh, $5 mil? No, Monday, uh, Monday, well, today, as of recording, they were expecting, you know, uh, No Time to Die to make between five and six uh, million dollars, comparatively, which, um, when they released Spectre, made about the same in 2015, which seems so much longer, um, so, yeah, it's about to be one of the top, um, non-holiday movies, well, it's among the top movies for the holiday on a Monday, which is a weird way to describe it, with Black Widow, Fast Nine, and Let There Be Carnage. Um, three days, for the past three days, it um, eased to $55 million. Um, so, yeah. We'll see. They said their numbers are slowing down, especially over the weekend due to you know, college football, NFL games, and playoffs, but we'll probably see that numbers pick up again, because I know a lot of schools are on their little break, breaky break, so a lot of teenagers... We'll probably go see this movie, but that's it from the, the box office. Yeah, I was reading something that it was like it, it basically made a little bit more back of its budget, but they were saying that that's not like a great thing. Yeah, but I don't know. I feel like in this time it probably is. I don't know. Well, the like, movie but... I think was expensive to make, and remember, they were trying to shop it around to other yeah. streaming platforms to like recoup their losses. And the money they were like, they were asking for far too much, and anybody would pay for a movie. And you got to understand that, you know, uh, uh, MGM was trying to make make back the money they spent on production. So you kind of do understand, but it'll it'll make back what it made back, like by the time the week is over. So yeah. Okay. Well, in other major news, the big controversy going on right now is about Glad. Netflix and Dave Chappelle. So Glad urges Netflix to condemn hateful content and live up to their own standards amid Dave Chappelle controversy. So hours after a memo by Netflix co-CEO declaring that the trans remarks in Dave Chappelle's latest special did, didn't cross the line was made public. One of the nation's leading LGBTQ plus advocacy organizations has called out the streamer for some serious hypocrisy. They said that Netflix has a policy that content designed to incite hate or violence is not allowed on the platform, but we all know that anti-LGBTQ content does exactly that. So this is about David Chappelle's new special, The Closer. And in it, he made some remarks about the trans community. He was saying that, I don't know if he was saying exactly, actually, I didn't watch it, so I'm just reading from what I researched. He was saying, um, he was talking about how people were getting canceled and trans people, well, J.K. Rowling and her comments that she made, how, oh, she got canceled and that she, he was team her, basically. And he was also talking about um, a trans friend he had who died, um, a man who had transitioned to a woman and he kept calling her a him. But he kept saying that, like, oh, he's going to, you know, donate money to his daughter and, you know, stuff like that. That's what I read. Now, again, I didn't see the specials. So I don't know what's inside of there. But I kind of just feel like Dave Chappelle has always been getting caught up in these controversial things because he just 
likes to be controversial, it seems to me. Um, like, he refuses to be politically or politically correct <laughs> ever. Um, and my thing is, like, just don't make jokes about it. Like, regardless of your personal feelings, how if you feel that, you know, people are too sensitive or if you feel that, um, oh, what I'm saying is funny or it doesn't hurt the family that I'm talking about, like, they're okay with it or whatever, like, just don't do it. I don't know why the instinct or the feeling to like have to push boundaries in this way is so important to some comedians because you can be funny without doing those jokes i feel like if you're actually really funny you don't need to do those things Mm -hmm. but it just seems like being edgy over you know having content that's actually funny is one of the things that he seems to be leading towards the most I don't know if that's true, but that's how I'm taking it because I'm just like, you don't, you've been called out for stuff before and it just seems like you keep, you keep doing the material and it's just like, at what point is it enough? Like, I just feel like it's enough. Like you don't, you don't, you don't need to do that, especially because the trans community, there is so much stuff that goes on there where people, where there's a lot of violence, like there's tangible violence that these trans people come under. I just don't think it's necessary. I just really don't think it's necessary. Like, regardless of how he feels about it, I'm just saying, like, you don't need to do the jokes. That's my opinion. Um, yeah, and I think Dave, like, now he needs, him talking about the comments about it, he gets his kicks off this idea of him being canceled or whatever. Um, it's a weird way to flex. Like, oh, I'm being offensive to people. Looking in. If, mm. And when you talk to a lot of comedians, the rule of thumb of comedy is to always punch up, never punch down. Um, you never really go against, uh, you never really attack of um, a group of people who, um, what's the word, who are vulnerable in a way. Yeah. And I know mm-hmm. if a white a white comedian went on stage and started making jokes about black people, he would be offended as an individual. Um, mm-hmm. And... What Netflix and in the letter Netflix sent out is, you know, they're like, oh, we have projects like sex education, controls, uh, controls, young royals disclosure, which, you know, uh, build up of, how do I say, build up of trans lives and lives, you know, other lives, you know, and then they were like, the response to that was you can't do a carbon offset for bigotry. Yeah, you might have, you know, four or five things that, you know, that don't show these alternative lifestyles or different races in a negative light, and you just, but then you can't just go put this on the pla- on your platform. You know? Mm-hmm. And which mm-hmm. makes it even worse is because, you know, um, Netflix has now gone on to suspend said employee for their views about the next, about a special. And I thought there was a line of, you know, people's personal views in a way don't affect don't follow the beliefs of their employers you know so mm-hmm. it's yeah it's netflix is wrong for this whole thing dave Chappelle, mm-hmm. as a comedian needs to grow up because there are other comedians if you interview them they said their previous work that was demeaning and offensive to people they would not done like eddie murphy says a lot of his material in raw him now being mm-hmm. older and wiser, he should not have done in the first place, and that become that's mm-hmm. clarity. It's clear to clear to me that Dave Chappelle does not have that sense of clarity, and I think also why we're attracted to his com- comedy is there was a time where we didn't have Dave Chappelle after Dave Chappelle show disappeared, so now we'll take whatever we can get, no matter who how offensive it how offensive it is or who it offends. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, everything you're saying is true. <laughs> and I also just feel like Netflix is there again it's it's irritating because you want especially in this time you want p- these corporations to have accountability but you see through these controversies how they're really just about the bottom line like they're making money off of it so they don't care and that's unfortunate for the people who work there for the trans community that works there like it's sucks because it's like yeah, yeah your own employer they're saying my money is more important than your life yeah or your experience or anything that you're going through like it's more important and that sucks but that really is just 
Ah, oh, the reality of the world really is growth. Anyway. So, um, you know, it hasn't been that much of a busy week in Hollywood as far as casting and stuff like that. The most biggest shakeup or news announced today was um Will Poulter um from Midsommar and I guess he was also in the Maze Runner as the main bad guy bully at one point. He was in Chronicles of Narnia. He was in We Are the Millers. Um, he's being um casted. He is casted as um Adam Warlock in um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, which will be directed by written and directed by James Gunn. We'll start we'll start shooting later on this year. Um, and it's kind of hard to see what direction people they'll take his character because it kind of took everything about Adam Warlock and put it on the vision in that threequel of movies since um, Age of Ultron in a way because the person most integral to the Infinity Saga in the comics was Vision you know that the, the stone that Vision does have in the movie and in WandaVision is usually attached to Adam Warlock so we'll see how they go with um, with introducing his character because it's going to be the same power set, and because a lot of majority of the Marvel fans now are not familiar with the comics, they might be viewed like, oh, he's just a, a replacement for the Vision, and they'll go crazy because they love Wanda, and it's come a whole, you know, a whole thing. So hopefully they, you know, figure it out on the direction they'll take with the character. I'm interested interested in to see how how they do it. So yeah. And I like Will. I, I love seeing him and stuff, so that'll be interesting. Yeah. Okay, and other news. Um, so, Timothy Chalamet addressed Army Hammer's sexual assault allegations. Um, first of all, can I just say I'm very proud of my little boy, Timmy. Um, he's on the cover of Time Magazine, and this is where this interview is taking from. But it's really cool to see him on the cover. I'm very proud. He's doing really well. Um, and basically the interviewer asked him about ARMY and those allegations, um, and he says, I totally get why you're asking that, but it's a question worthy of a larger conversation, and I don't want to give you a partial response. Yeah. So, that was his <laughs> response to that question. It wasn't really a response. thought it was a smart move on his part to not get into this, but it is... I guess the question is kind of important because it's not only about Timmy and Army's friendship, it was also about the fact that they were going to make a second Call Me By Your Name movie. So because of all of Army's drama, it doesn't really seem like that's happening anymore. But um, I like the way he handled the situation. It was a question that I had in my mind just because I know how close they are. Well, not personally, but just from what I can see through interviews and social media and all that other stuff and I was wondering during the time all this army hammer stuff was popping off I was like I wonder how Timmy's dealing with this like this kind of sucks like your friend has got like fired from his agency like he does not have a job like people are accusing him of rape like it's pretty bad so it was interesting because I was wondering if anyone was going to ask the question because it's kind of weird to ask but um yeah I think what he's basically saying is like what's going on here has a lot to do with like other people's experiences and it's a conversation about the treatment of women um the treatment of men by hollywood um, the systematic stuff that goes on there sexual abuse consent all the other stuff like all of that stuff is baked into army harem situation so i do think the conversations don't really have anything to do with him so he doesn't really need to talk about it mm -hmm. but i like how he handled it nevertheless i mean it's always weird when actors are pacing these situations to defend or explain or mm. um yeah, talk about have. talk about yeah talk about issues with the co-stars mm -hmm. and it's also diff different because timothy being as young as he is and calling by your name being his breakout role not and well army hammer this is like the second like he did, Man from Uncle. He's done yeah. Notebook. I mean, yeah, Facebook. This is like his third 
major movie. So to, to pin it all on Timothy to explain and talk about the whole situation is really unfair. I understand you want another follow-up to call him by your name. Um, but you can't pin it on him. Like, even though Timothy's not that much younger than me. Um, so you can't pin it on a kid to explain that situation that an adult was dealing with. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah and... Yeah, I'm just, yeah, it, it wasn't his responsibility to answer any of these questions. And I think the fact that he even said anything was tasteful. Um, he also released some photos of him on Willy Wonka, the prequel, I think, to Wonka. Yeah, to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, you had a joke about this. Oh, no, it wasn't my joke. It was, um, <laughs> some people referred it to as, um, you know, um, him looking like Gonzo from, um, A Muppet Christmas Carol, which is funny. Um, but, yeah. Um, I don't know. It looks more grounded in realism compared mm-hmm. to, you know, the Michael Jacksonification of, you know, Johnny Depp's one. So... Mm-hmm. Am mm-hmm. I looking forward to it that much? Not really, in a way, but, you know, a movie's a movie. Yeah. Willy Wonka was always super creepy to me, whether it was Johnny Depp or Gene Wilder. Mm-hmm. I didn't, like, he oh, he just made me uncomfortable. Like, have you ever just seen something that gave you the shivers? Like, he just made me itch a little bit. I didn't really, like, I don't like that character yeah. at all, per se. So the fact that Timmy's taking this role, I was like, ugh, don't like the character. Not excited about this movie at all. Like, I'll see it, but <laughs> I'm just not thrilled. But now that I've under like, I'm learning more about the production side of it. Like, I think there's a really good director attached. Um, Olivia, what is her last name? Coleman. There we go. <laughs> Olivia Coleman and others. <laughs> And other really good actors are attached to the project, which is going to be interesting. Um, and also there's going to be like singing and dancing. I know that's something that Timothy really likes and wanted to try and get into as well. So I think it'll be fine. And from the photos, it does look like a much more grounded version of the character, especially because it's like before the Chocolate Factory. So it's like his life before that. So it seems like it'll be more realistic, more honest. Mm-hmm. And that's giving me a little bit more faith <laughs> in whatever this project is going to be. But I'm excited he's trying new things. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, hopefully, this is like a third attempt at this kind of thing. I don't know why they're trying to make Willy Wonka into a thing. But they are. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I'd, I'd much rather, you know, get the experience, like, how should I say it? The the life of Charlie with the Chocolate Factory. I'm tired of hearing about you know Willie with the Chocolate Factory, um, because there are two other books in the movie in the series. You no, know, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, talking about Charlie owning the factory and his experiences. They could go with that, but um, I didn't know there was more. Yeah, so oh, they should have done that. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. They should have done that. Hollywood man. Yeah. Speaking of Hollywood, there is breaking news that um, Alan Horn, who is the creative chief creative officer of Disney, is retiring mm-hmm. after fifty years in the business. <laughs> That's interesting to me. I maybe he was gonna retire anyways, but also it kind of just feels like because Bob Iger left, now he's leaving. Disney's going through some major changes. I think they were probably a little shook by Scarlet and all that other stuff. This is really interesting to me because I'm like, maybe if the old people leave, then the new people will stop making remakes. Yeah. Of our animated movies. That's my hope. That's my prayer. <laughs> Don't touch any more of the Disney classics. <laughs> and you know what? You know what's funny on that? Like, um. They really, I think they released his memo to the new CEO, and one of the things he said was not to trust market research 
And he was like, because if we did trust market research, they wouldn't have the success they've had with Shang-Chi and Black Panther. And that kind of, you know, lets me know that Marcus research in a way is kind of racist and biased because if you're allowed on your market research to make movies and then you make this one you go wow we didn't expect the success anybody with half a brain could have told you there are more people you can target than the ones you've been used to target because market research mostly relies on trends that have always existed and let's just mm-hmm. be honest Hollywood is not a place that's include well, Hollywood is not a place that's inclusive and inviting to other demographics and markets in their research so making some solid points there friend okay um so (laughs) that's it for the news let's talk about our recommendations for the weekend what did you watch dale oh man so um i watched venom let there be carnage i'll preface this with the the a pause saying i didn't watch the first one but i didn't feel like in watching this movie i had to watch the first one anyway because the only backstory is, and is, hey, we date, we broke up, and now you have Venom, and you saved the day. Don't need to watch the first movie to get the backstory of, the first, of this one. Um, this movie is like feels like oh, this movie's runtime. I think is like an hour and um fifteen minutes, I think, or thirty, mm-hmm. and it feels a lot faster. Like the pacing, oh. the pacing to me feels really rushed. Like. They were just like, we're just gonna go to the, the final scene. We're gonna just push this plot forward, no matter how, no matter how weird it seems. Like the weird mm-hmm. cut, the weird, you know, like we we're talking about James Bond earlier, how it's kind of globe trotting and they cut from location to location, but it kind of feels more natural in that progression. Like, oh, James, you have to go to, to Cuba or whatever, but they stretch it in and they structure it in a way where you spend so much time in one location. And there's so much going on in exchange, so when he has to transition to another location, there's at least a breath in understanding why. This, like, jumps from scene to scene really quick. And he just calls, like, hey, yeah, I'm at this location now looking for that thing you asked me about ten seconds ago. And it it's, like, the pacing and editing are really frenetic, which, yeah, was not, you know, good. I felt like they tried to oversell, you know, um, Tom Hardy's comedic side. Which is, he has that, but that's not really what is known for, in a way. And they trying mm-hmm. to play Woody Harrelson's comedic side in a dark and creepy way, which didn't really work. I, I felt like, in the initial casting, I thought Woody Harrelson would have did a wonderful job. But it's it's clear in this movie that the writing and directing clearly missed a mark on his talents. Because they could have made him mm-hmm. a, a more sarcastic, uh, not in a joker way, but a more, a, a more trickster kind of way. You know, still have him be creepy, but it didn't work at all. So yeah, I didn't really. I wasn't a fan of this movie. I would never watch it again. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I yeah, I, I have nothing. And it's weird. I saw such a bad movie, and then the next day I saw such a good movie, and it makes the 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 issues of the bad movie so much more after watching James Bond. But yeah, I would not. Yeah, you could not pay me to watch this movie again. I'm sorry. I would have recommended anybody. Um, I've been hearing some stuff about this movie, so I was excited that you watched it because I wanted to hear what you had to say. Because I heard that what the Tom Hardy and the other people, they tried to listen to what audiences had to say about the last movie and tried to like fix those mistakes in this one. But then I heard that this movie ended up being worse than the first one. So I was like... Maybe it's just not working out, guys. Like, I don't know. Which is weird, because clearly we've seen with, you know, Into the Spider-Verse, Sony can make a Spider-Man X movie, and Sony on its own makes good movies. I don't understand why they can F up with this Venom thing, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I watched... A HBO documentary called 15 Minutes of Shame. Um, it's produced by Monica Lewinsky. I've been like really into like understanding her story because obviously when it happened, I was like two. So I don't know anything. I didn't really know much about what happened. So I was listening to podcasts and watching other documentaries about that whole Clinton era impeachment moment, her stuff 
obviously there is a new FX like American crime thing about them. But she's a producer now and she's been producing a couple of things and this is one of the things that she's producing. She's like an anti-bully um, advocate and activist. So this is talking about people who are canceled, people who are publicly shamed online. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting. Like they go through the history of shaming, which they like obviously predates the internet. But then they also show like what happens online and how you can literally wake up one day and like your whole life is ruined you're fired from your job like everyone hates you you might get doxxed people might come to your home like and the scary thing about this was like it could literally be anyone like it literally could be me like if i said something wrong i could be canceled tomorrow and then my whole life is done like that's really terrifying that like a group of people can like really ruin your life like that like they were showing different people from different scenarios and uh, i highly recommend everyone watch this documentary by the way because it was insane like i was just like yo it scared me because i was like if you have anything on a public pa- platform like it could be you, like nobody's safe. And I think that's what they're trying to say is like, we need to restructure how we deal with these situations because it's not the point of like, cancel culture is bad and you can't keep people accountable. But like the consequences that come from trying to hold people accountable needs to make sense in 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 context of the situation. Yeah. like how we keep corporations and people in public life accountable is different than some how you keep like some random person who works in a walmart or something like that like you can't they have to be proportionate to what's happening you can't just like dog on someone and literally ruin their life basically because you don't really know the context of what's going on you just see like a video or you see like a headline and you're going oh my emotions tell me this is bad so i have to shame this person and make them feel horrible because i have some type of moral high ground it doesn't make any sense it makes no sense but that's what we do all the time so i highly recommend this this is a really good documentary to watch and hopefully it'll create a little bit more empathy like hopefully we can be more understanding to situations and not just impulsively do stuff that's my hope but we'll see um and then i finished scenes from a marriage which is also on hbo (laughs) It feel Max is good. Like they kind of, they're cranking out some good stuff. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. I need to have like a loaded conversation about this. <laughs> I will say that Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac are like perfect together. Like I could watch them do anything together. They're just so they're great actors, but they're great together. Like there's something about their specific chemistry that's really powerful. So I want to see them more stuff because, like, they were so good in this. The whole story, though, just made it... I don't know. It just made me feel a lot of things. Awkward. And I just... No, I just feel like, I don't know. My thing every time I watch a movie or a TV show, is like, what are you trying to say? That's always what I come to at the end of the day. What are you saying? And I feel like what they were trying to say doesn't line up with not what's kind of socially acceptable, but for how I feel about certain topics. Like it just didn't line up with my understanding of relationships and marriage. So that's why I'm just like, what are you talking about? I guess, I guess my own experiences, my own understanding of these things, mm-hmm. are just they're just conflicting with what the message of this show is saying to me. Um, but I, I received it. I, I, I understand the perspective. <laughs> I understand what they're trying. I got it. I'm just saying, I don't agree, and that's it. You don't agree what the message is giving. So I right, looks like I gotta pay catch up. You know. To see if I come to the conclusion as your different conclusion. Um, yeah, we'll talk about this. But yeah, no, I like in that that fifteen that fifteen minutes of fame. Um, I'll probably go take a few of that too as well. And it's really interesting yeah. because this idea of 
canceling in a way has shifted because now if you cancel somebody it doesn't matter as much anymore depending on the person um but in, in monica's case she was a 22 year old kid technically like she had like literally almost like just like apparently during that whole situation with bill clinton she had she was what it's they say it started from 95 to 97. 95 she's 22 years old she does yeah. not. She's not gonna understand the gravity of the situation, and then even after that, she's still in her early twenties. She's still, for all intents and purposes, still a child, still figuring out her way of the world. And for her to receive that vitriol, and you would think after a situation like that, where, where the adult in power is the one that's wrong, and everybody thinks Bill is wrong, that they would get the most flack for it. But now nah, they put all the onus on her. You would think after that we would, kind of, be more cautious in the way we react to these kind of situations, but we still haven't. So, yeah, we haven't really changed as a society in the way we treat people when things like this happen, so. And they were saying that she was like patient zero because all of that stuff, she was like the first person to get like exposed online. Yeah. Because from my understanding, they couldn't publish the actual story, so they put it online. So everybody was reading all the intimate details of what happened. Yeah. And so that's why she was like, I guess she cared more about like what's going on online because it's like, oh yeah, this was me. Like this happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> I was the the what the the guinea pig for all this stuff. So. Yeah. So good though, but yeah. All right, well, that's it from us. We hope that you're doing well and we hope that you're having a great week. We, please check out our social medias. Please support us on Anchor. Um, please go watch No Time to Die and check out the movies that we recommended. Don't watch and Carnage. Don't watch Venom. Don't, don't watch it. Don't, don't watch it. You wouldn't even like recommend it for like a funny no, one. No, wouldn't, wouldn't recommend it at all. <laughs> if you have somebody you hate, like hey guys we're friends let's go watch a movie i'd recommend that you know because then after that they probably never talk to you again and be disappointed but yeah no wouldn't recommend it okay well please go watch 15 minutes of shame and scenes from a marriage form your own opinions let us know um in the comments on youtube or on socials we are weeks away from doing guys we're almost there i don't know i'm i'm concerned of how i'm gonna watch it though dude because it's on h it's on hbo max as well same day oh you have to see it in the theater i know so i'm like no. and like and i'm paying for hbo max the same amount and i could watch it in my house and be comfortable or do i want to like i'm really concerned and if i watch it in theater if i watch it in the theater i'm gonna have to do the whole dolby imax experience if i watch it on so I'm gonna probably flip a coin on it. I'm having a dilemma because I don't, I know I have to go see it in IMAX. However, the IMAX theater is far away from me, which means I don't have to drive there. Yes. Whereas the regular theater is just in my neighborhood. Do I see it in the regular theater or do I have to go see it in IMAX? I don't know. <laughs> I don't wanna make the drive. Anyways, this has nothing to do with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so um, have a great week and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Au revoir.